production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversation with consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, July 15th, and I'm Dr. Akram Boutros, President and CEO of the Metro Health System. I am pleased to introduce the first of four conversations at the City Club about creating a continuum of care for mental health and substance abuse in our community. This behavioral health series is presented by the Metro Health System with additional support from the Sisters of Charity Foundation and the Woodruff Foundation. I reached out to the City Club to host these gatherings because the behavioral health crisis that is, threaten is threatening the welfare and safety of all of us. And it deserves attention from each of us. This was true before COVID and it is still true today. In fact, after two and a half years of disruption, isolation, and uncertainty, the behavioral health epidemic, which previously had gone unnoticed, is even worse. I am fairly certain that we are looking at a decade of behavioral health and addiction fallout that will far exceed the medical toll from the COVID-19 pandemic. I realize many of you are quietly aware of the impact of mental health and addiction is having on our friends and families. The escalating crisis we will face is beginning to manifest, itself, manifest in an endless wave of mass shootings, most of them perpetrated by young men who appear to be struggling with untreated mental illness. Less prominent are the routine and daily deaths from homicides and suicides that plague our major cities. According to the CDC, nearly 60% of gun deaths in the United States each year are suicides. When looking at the number of suicides, white men are six times as likely to die by suicide than other Americans. In 2020 alone, the firearm homicide rate increased nearly 35% reaching its highest level since 1994. Black men are 17 times as likely to be killed with a gun fired by someone else. Among 14 to 25 year olds, overdose, overdose deaths are four times what they were 20 years ago. Homelessness and incarcerations due to mental health issues are rising at an alarming rate. This story is not other people's story. It is our story. If you and your family have been spared so far, you will not be for long. If it seems like I'm trying to alarm you, I am. I want to alarm us into caring, into action, into solutions. These diseases, and that's what they are, diseases, not character flaws, 
are striking people in every corner of our community, on every rung of the economic ladder, in every age group. Unless the audience thinks I'm criticizing our mental health and addiction professionals, I am not. We are blessed to have people and organizations throughout this community trying every day to weave a behavioral health safety net that catches those in need. You're going to meet some of them today. But despite their good intentions and best efforts, the needs are so great and our safety net so filled with holes that too many of those we love fall through. I am critical of the outcome, not the people. We must do better. With new leaders emerging in government, healthcare, a nonprofit organization, now is the time to boldly act in mitigating this crisis. Our community and our humanity are at stake. Here with us today to discuss important issues pertaining to behavioral health care is Dr. Michael Bascaro, Vice President of Behavioral Health Services at St. Vincent Charity Health Campus at the Sisters of Charity Health System. Dr. Julia Bruner, Senior Vice President for Behavioral Health and Correctional Medicine at the Metro Health System. Eric Morse, President and CEO at the Centers, and Jessica Vasquez, Mental Health Specialist at the Right Direction Behavioral Health Services. Moderating the conversation today is Marlene Harris-Taylor, reporter and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. If you have questions for our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. The City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists and Marlene Harris-Taylor. Marlene? Thank you so much, Dr. Boutros, for that wonderful opening statement. You really laid the ground for this very important conversation that we're going to have today. And I'm so honored to be back on the City Club stage this is my first time back in person since what some people call the before times. <laughs> so I'm so happy to be here today. And we're going to start off by what might seem like a simple question for the folks in this room, but for many people who might be listening, they may be wondering, what exactly is behavioral health care? It's a big term, so let's start by defining it. Michael, I'm gonna start with you and ask you, what can you share with folks, what is behavioral health care? What does that mean? Well, um, before I answer that, um, I want to thank you and, and Dr. Bruchos for that introduction. Thank you to the City Club uh, for inviting us here. Um, thanks to the panel, but really thanks to all of you uh, who work tirelessly with us um, to address these issues uh, that are facing the most vulnerable in our communities. Uh, but behavioral health, um, first of all, it's health care, right? Behavioral health is health care. Um, but it's really an umbrella term um, that defines 
um, how we describe any mental, emotional, or addictive disorder for individuals. Um, but really, I want to bring it back to it is healthcare, and it's important and critical for us to address. And Julie, I'm going to ask you to come in on this conversation because you mentioned that, you know, there is some, um, it's not really settled within the community exactly what it goes in that bucket. Different people put different things in the behavioral health care bucket. Yeah, so for many people in healthcare, understanding um, what a, how we term mental health provider versus behavioral health provider, it can be a little confusing even to nursing staff, primary care physicians, specialty physicians. It's a, it's, it is a new term it, if, within healthcare. And um, the intent of it is, is exactly what Mike shared, which is uh, we really want to ensure that it's encompassing all the needs in relation to mental, emotional, and uh, um, care for addictive illnesses. Um, but it, it's something that uh, part of the challenge with this has to do with the licensure related to the, to the, the professionals in the field. And that creates a lot of um, misunderstandings as to who can do what mm -hmm. in the field itself. Ah, I see. Now, let's move to talking about the larger issue, that one of the big issues we want to talk about today, which is the behavioral health, now that we know what that is, the continuum of care in our community. Do we have a full continuum of behavioral health care in Northeast Ohio? And I'm going to start with uh, Jessica. To, to talk about that. Um, I would say that um, when you're looking, when you're thinking of continuum of care, you're really wanting to encompass how are we collaborating at different levels. So I do feel that in Northeast Ohio, there is such a strong push for how our hospital systems that now have behavioral health centers, um, our education systems collaborating with our mental health agencies. So I think we're looking at it as a big puzzle and what are all the pieces that we can be putting into that puzzle to really provide that continuum of care that's so necessary, but also has a lot of elements to it. Um, so we're you know, here speaking on behavioral health, but within behavioral health is their physical you know, well-being, their mental well-being. So it's quite a large scope, um, and I think that Northeast Ohio is headed in that direction, and these conversations are very crucial to what do those next steps look like to really bring it all together. You're right, it is a, it is a large scope. So, um, Eric, how are we doing on it? What, what's your assessment? Yeah, so uh, when you think about the continuum of care, which really starts with prevention uh, through outpatient services to crisis services and then inpatient and, uh, and then hopefully back into the cycle of starting with outpatient, um, all the ingredients are here in Cuyahoga County. Um, I, I, you know, I think there, there are two issues getting in our way. One, is, actually it's three issues. One is workforce, that it's, uh, there aren't enough people going into this field for a number of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons, which is this, the second issue, I think, is that the reimbursement system is inadequate and not set up to properly incent the right activities. Uh, and then third is that it's very uh, uh, bifurcated. There are each each organization kind of does their own thing, and the continuum doesn't necessarily make it easy for someone to get through the whole system, depending on what your circumstances are. If you have Medicaid, your experience is gonna be one way. If you have commercial insurance, it's gonna be a different way. If you're uninsured, it's gonna be a different way. Um, and uh, it's really hard to navigate. I mean, I can speak personally. So I've been in this field for over 20 years. 
And when my, when my kid needed something, it took me four months to get her into an appointment, right? And I know the system. I know how to get her in. Um, that, that's how difficult it is right now to, to wow. achieve care. So imagine if you're someone who doesn't have your knowledge. Right. And, and we talked about that there's a communication issue. Like communication is key for everything, right? And communication is key in making sure we fill the gaps. Right, Julia? Yeah. So at, at this stage in relation to how... Um, our communities and our nation are interested in improving mental health and the stigma is being addressed on a daily basis. I don't think a day goes by where I don't hear a comment on the radio or a comment on TV around uh, mental health awareness and people wanting to ensure that uh, everyone knows that it's okay to reach out. Yes. Um, uh, the challenges that we face in, in the current network as it sits is there's, there's little connectivity between the organizations in Northeast Ohio. And building that connectivity is our opportunity as, as a community to really ensure that that handoff in relation to a child who needs support in a variety of different ways goes to the right provider and if that, that need changes, that that person that's received, providing that care knows where to go next and does it in a way that's simple and easy for them to do that doesn't take three days to figure out. You know, you mentioned children, and there was a really, you know, devastating story recently. There were media reports of two Cuyahoga County Division of Children and Family Services workers making allegations about the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center. They alleged rampant violence, abuse, and sexual assault, unsafe conditions, staff being assaulted on the job, uh, human trafficking, and even rape. I mean, it was just shocking, I think, to the community and very sad and, and everybody's heart goes out to you know everyone involved especially the children so when people hear things like that they're like wow we are we're dropping the ball somewhere in our community where are we dropping the ball on that what do you think I, eric i wish that was a simple answer like yeah just dropping one it's like we're dropping 30 balls okay uh, to, to get us to that to those circumstances and those stories obviously are heart are heart-wrenching heartbreaking um, but they're a symptom of a much larger problem, a very large, complex problem. Um, you know, we've been in, uh, the centers has been in conversations with the county, uh, trying to work on what is the right solution, uh, along with many other providers like Guidestone, who's in, the, in, in here. You know, there are a lot of people trying to solve this problem, but these are kids the whole system has failed. When they end up there and there's literally nowhere else for them to go, uh, to the point where children's services workers have to care for them, which is not what their role is. Uh, and God, you know, God bless them for the work that they've been doing, uh, doing their best to keep those kids safe. Um, but it, it really is our system has failed them. And how do we bring a different solution to help those kids stabilize and then become, you know, uh, important members of the community instead of kind of what's set up now where a lot of those kids are going to end up in systems that uh, like cr the criminal justice system or worse. Right. right. I know, Julia, I, I think Metro Health, I'm sure, is, is trying also to help in this situation because yeah. you guys are a big player yeah. in this community. So we have a close link in relation to their medical care uh, with the foster system, and we, we have uh, worked diligently with many team members from our population help, from the Institute of Hope, from our PEDS psychiatry, PEDS psychology, uh, from our medical teams to really support the needs um, from, a, from a health perspective for these children. Um, and, and we will continue to help focus uh, those needs and help with that as much as we can. So Michael, what did you think when you, you heard these reports? 
I, I think it just shows the incredible need, shouty caps need, right? I mean, there is an incredible need out there. Um, Eric, great, I mean, right, it, it highlights um, the, the difficulties with the system. And I think this really is a, a, a not only uh, that, what we're hearing there, which is, is tragic, but just the way things have been for the last two years, right? Um, everybody's struggling. Everybody's having a difficult time. Um, and this is really our time to all come together and figure this thing out and, and do it right and do it well, um, again, for the people who really truly need it most. You're right, everybody's been suffering, especially children, and people are really worried about, especially on the mental health side for children. And Jessica, I know you work in the school system, so tell us what you're seeing, how are our kids doing, and what do we need to do in the schools to make sure that there are no gaps and we don't have people falling through the system? Yeah, right now, um, coming out of you know what the children went through, um, including the pandemic, a lot of our children are, have experienced a lot of trauma. Uh, what we're seeing in you know the school buildings and the classrooms um, is very worrisome in terms of um, the high need that there is for addressing behavioral health, as well as um, where 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 is everybody who can help. And how are we coming together? How are we collaborating? I know a lot of our schools in Northeast Ohio have built partnerships with behavioral health agencies, um, and that's an amazing start. But when we talk once again about that continuum of care, it's what does that collaboration look like? What are still the links that need to be addressed so that when um, we're looking at our educators and those in the building, how are they best prepared to recognize our children in need and for our educators many will probably be able to connect with the fact that in a lot of instances we're looking at tier one so we're looking at universally our children are coming in and the majority of the population in a school could um, have experienced trauma on a lot of different levels so considering that is there enough help in the schools because obviously it sounds like the need is huge so is there enough help there right now? I would say that many would, would agree there's not enough help. Um, our schools are now looked at as where we can provide health care, mental health care, in education, um, you know, social emotional learning. So given the responsibility now put on our educators and those working with children, there's not enough. Hmm. And enough. teachers are, are having to do a lot of this themselves, right? Yeah, a lot of times they're that, um, that first point and most, uh, the strongest point of contact with the children they see day in and day out. Um, so when they have the responsibility of educating them in their academics, um, connecting with them emotionally, building that relationship and trying to figure out who are those that can come in and really help um, because one person can't do it all, one school building um, can't do it all. Michael, did you wanna jump in there? Well, I was just going to, um, you know, say is, is, is why, um, you know, why if we have such a great need, um, do we not have it? Uh, do we not have what we need to provide that care? Do you think we have this problem in, like, healthcare in general? Um, you know, I mean, I think that, um, I think until um, behavioral health is no longer kind of the underling <laughs> of the healthcare system, are we not going to really make um, significant progress? I don't know that we'll solve all of those answers here today. Well, that's but an interesting point though. So why is behavioral health an underling of the healthcare system? Why is that? 
There really, I mean, there's a lack of enforcement of parity to begin with. I mean, the federal government did pass a law that, that, that behavioral health care had to be treated as equal, equal to physical health care, and it still isn't. It, it, it just isn't. I mean, the, there are <coughs> 50% of the people who need help can't get help or don't get help. Of that, 30% of them don't get it because they can't afford it. And in Ohio, most people are insured. So not being able to afford it is because the, the reimbursement rates aren't correct, so they have to private pay, or there's, there's a very small network. I mean, if, if this were about like heart attacks, no one would be like, oh, the network isn't adequate, you gotta go out of network. Like, that, that's, that's absurd. So there really is a lack of enforcement, and I, I, do, you know, I don't wanna make it simple, like it's just the government or it's just insurance companies, because it's employers. It's all of us deciding, right, if we're gonna pay more for behavioral health care, it's gonna cost us more, right? Our insurance rates are gonna have to go up. We have to commit that as well. Right, it's not just on insurance companies and the government to, to make that happen. So you're saying as a society, mm -hmm. we're saying that this is important, but we're not putting our money where our mouth is? Mm -hmm. is Correct. That and, That's right. And the educational requirements for counselors, for uh, uh, medical providers or health providers that work in this space, uh, you know, they're master's degree level trained individuals. And, uh, and their ability to receive um, compensation for that level of education hasn't been, it's not equitable. And why is that? It goes back to our prioritization around what types of health care have the, the most importance in relation to um, our perception of health. So how do salaries get determined and set or raised? <laughs> how does that happen? It has a lot to do with how, um, how the um, care is paid for and how it's reimbursed. And so it, it goes back to, it's a very complex space. It has a lot to do with um, uh, how it's ranked in relation to um, Medicare and how they reimburse. By the government? By the government, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, private institutions, private hospitals, or even nonprofit hospitals have no say in these setting these rates outside of reimbursement from the government or private health insurance companies? So there are, so there are ways that we can change this. Um, and there are ways uh, to change it in relation to how we look at the value of mental health care and how we reimburse it. If we started looking at mental health care in relation to improving uh, behavioral health and its outcomes in relation to health overall, and we look at pay for performance in relation to that care, that's, I think, where we will gain more interest from a society standpoint and from a payer standpoint if we are able to show that um, when mental health care is, is provided in a, in a, a phenomenal way, mm -hmm. medical problems are, are not as severe or they're more controlled in that space. And there are studies that are continuing to show that. Um, there was a study done um, uh, that was published by the VA this spring that showed that um, veterans who had a platform in relation to telehealth for their, for their psychotherapy had lower incidences in relation to going to the emergency department, not only for suicide events, but also for medical conditions. So, so this all kind of starts with how workers are reimbursed from the government, and that sort of starts the whole system and continues to perpetuate the lower salaries. So it, 
it, uh, that's a piece of it, right? If if we if we recognize the value of a of a counseling session at a level for a sixty minute visit with a professional, um, at, at a level that's the same as a fifteen minute visit with a primary care doc, that's that shows you the potential gaps in relation to that reimbursement because that mental health provider can only do so they they need 60 minutes with mm -hmm. that with that patient right they can't do it in 15. right so is this then also um tying into the worker shortage that we're seeing i know that as a society overall we're having a worker shortage right everybody there's you know help one size everywhere right but this is particularly stark in healthcare and behavioral healthcare, is it not? It is. It, we're face, so in, in our industry as a whole, um, there are many people who are aging out, who are retiring. Um, they're at that age where they can retire and, and they're ready to do so. And there's, there is a lack of abundance of people in the workforce who are taking their place. Mm. Um, that being said, I think in the current younger generation, in the teens and the 20s, I don't know what that generation's called. Um, I'm not sure. Are they Zs? I don't know. Does anybody know? I think it's Gen, Gen Z. Z. Gen Z. <laughs> um, that generation is actually very interested and motivated not only in um, uh, work that is mission driven, mm -hmm. but also interested in mental health. Yes. And I think we need to tap into that. Yeah. We need to tap into that and support them getting them through school so that we are able to build that workforce. Mm -hmm. But do they do they know the salaries? Well, <laughs> that's why we need to support them to get through school. So that could be established um, to be more incentivizing, along with um, I think it's very important that you know we also address when you disaggregate the data mm -hmm. of who is going into this profession, um, or just in higher education in general. Um, you know, there's a reason why when I graduated and was going through school in you know 2015 to 2016 i was still there because of an underrepresented scholarship so when we're looking at you know our um those in training you know those of color um that would be well represented in mm -hmm. terms of who they're treating yes um we're seeing a big uh, gap there in terms of for example we may have a high need of um let's say children adolescents you know even adults um, from different ethnic racial backgrounds, but those servicing them do not appropriately represent them. Um, so even looking at our training programs um, and who's being supported in getting through school and what these training programs are looking like. How can we be structuring this in a way where, where we are well prepared, um, but we don't have to go through so many years of training and so many obstacles to get a license? And what does that look like when you train one place and you know, you go to Ohio or you then move to Florida. Um, so the systemically, there's many things that I think can be addressed to help us bridge that gap of that high need, but needing our workforce to mirror that. Yeah, cultural competence is so important because often people would like a provider that looks like them, right? So um, what are you doing at the centers to address the, the shortage of workers? Uh, well, a few things. You know, we've uh, over the last year really worked to uh, figure out how we how we could push wages up. Um, it, it's definitely a bet on ourselves because it's the reimbursement rates don't necessarily support those increased 
um, salaries, but if we don't do it, we don't have people, right? And we, we're not gonna be able to get the work done. Um, so, so we're taking that move. The other thing is that we're shifting, uh, you know, we can't just wait to fill all of our workforce positions. How could we also look at how we provide services so that uh, we can reach more people with the resources we have? And so this uh, next week, we're opening two behavioral health urgent care centers, which will be the first in Cleveland, I think, uh, one, of, one of the first in Ohio, where uh, just like if you, you, know, have, you, you break your ankle or whatever, or you turn your ankle, you go to urgent care, right? That if you're having some sort of change in your behavioral health symptoms, or maybe you've been suffering with depression and you're finally ready to go get help. And we know that if, if you're in that boat and you call to get help, it's gonna be a while before you get in. Right? And so with this system, if, you, if you're finally ready to come in, then just come in. Right? Call or just walk in the door, and we have a team of people, a social worker, a psychiatrist, uh, or, or nurse practitioner, a care coordinator, nursing, who can wrap all those services around someone, get them started on treatment, and then do that ongoing linkage and kind of be that uh, bridge in between that emergency or crisis and when someone can actually have ongoing care. And so how is this manifesting at St. Vincent? charity in terms of the worker shortage what um, obstacles are you having in terms of making sure everybody can get care that needs it well um, you know what I'd say about you know uh, workforce is obviously I mean all of our at the health system all of our ministries are struggling just like everybody uh, to get people in and provide care um, I mean I think certainly um, right uh, the, the demand is is outstripping um, supply um, and we need to do a lot of things to um, correct that. Um, we need to get younger folks interested in, in this field way earlier, right, Nick? We need to get younger <laughs> folks interested in this field much earlier, um, and, and we need to support them um, um, as they do that. I myself had, you know, a high school student with me um, at our system, and and who's really interested is going to be a wonderful psychologist one day. Maybe a social worker, a counselor as well, but, but you know, she, um, you know, we really need to invest in our younger folks, um, and we also, um, you know, we, we also um, really need to leverage uh, those disciplines that give us lived experience, uh, peers. Um, we're seeing the rise of the community health worker. Wouldn't it be great if we could combine those two roles and have people with lived experience in mental health, addiction, and homelessness, but also with uh, community health knowledge that's a trusted resource in a community. Um, there's a lot of things we can do, we just need to start doing them. Well, you know, one bright spot, and I assume it's a bright spot, is that tomorrow the 988 line goes into effect, and that's the, uh, the line that we, we're hopeful that people will begin to use if they're having a crisis situation, particularly around suicide. So there was a 1-800 number that people have to call now. And then starting tomorrow, this will be available in our community. I'm assuming that this is, you know, welcome. Julia? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, to make it easier for people to have access to um, finding out what resources they have, mm -hmm. ensuring that they have access to support if they need it, um, and, and how to get to the emergency department if they need to get to the emergency department, or mm -hmm. how to connect with um, the center's urgent care, we, we need that. We yeah. need that, and that's gonna be Do phenomenal. we have any challenges locally about making sure, you were talking about staffing shortages here. Do we have any challenges locally making sure that there's somebody there to answer the call? I think this is where I, like, we just get, need to give kudos to the Adams Board of Cuyahoga County because they have really been uh, just instrumental in planning this out. There's places in, Cle in Ohio that are not ready. 
right? Uh, and so they, it's a, and it's a big lift to change to change your system over. And they've done a great job working with their partner at Frontline Service to to make sure that's ready to go tomorrow, and that there's someone to answer the phone. We're ready in Cuyahoga County. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off here. No, I was just going to say, can you imagine right now if we were talking about, hey, tomorrow 911's coming online? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, I mean, and, and so thankfully, <laughs> we finally have a number that's super simple that anybody can call when they need it. Certainly, we're going to see how that whirls out. Um, City Club will be talking about crisis care in a few months, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably be able to talk about that then and hear about that then. But, um, I mean, yeah, this is wonderful. What we probably still need, though, is some infrastructure to go along with it, right? So we'll see how this number really connects everybody like we've been talking about, right? How does it connect everybody? How do we talk to one another? How do we coordinate the wealth of resources that are in this county? Um, but it's certainly a miraculous step. All right, so on that note, we're about to begin the audience Q&A. And again, I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor. I'm the managing producer at Health at WKSU IdeaStream Public Media. Today, we're talking about creating a true continuum of behavioral health care here in Northeast Ohio. Joining us is Dr. Michael Bascaro, Vice President of Behavioral Health Services at St. Vincent Charity Health Campus at the Sisters of Charity Health System. Dr. Julia Bruner, Senior Vice President for Behavioral Health and Correctional Medicine at Metro Health. Eric Morris, President and CEO of, at the Centers. And Jessica Vasquez, Mental Health Specialist at Right Direction Behavioral Health Services. Um, we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org or on the radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. That's at the City Club. You can also text to 330-541-5794. I'll say that again, 330-541-5794. And our staff will try to work everything into the program, all the tweets, all the questions. And I see we got a, a person at the mic, and let's go to our first question. Good afternoon. Thank you. I, my question is, where does Cleveland, this region, stack up against other similar size, both in availability of resource and especially in financing? Hmm, that's a good question. How do we stack up? Who wants to take that one? Well, I, 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 so there's a couple ways to look at it, right? I think uh, Cleveland, Cuyahoga County does a really great job of their providers leveraging the resources that are available and bringing those resources into Cleveland. And I think we do it as well in Cleveland as we do anywhere else, uh, any other large major city. Um, you know, I think uh, our, the Adams Board funding, which comes through Cuyahoga County as well as the state of Ohio, is uh, probably somewhere in the middle if you look at like uh, other bigger communities in, in Ohio and could definitely use their own levy and their own resources to be able to really provide all the adequate services uh, needed in Cuyahoga County. Um, so I, I'd probably put us right in the middle right now. Yeah. When you, when you look at um, publications from the state of Ohio, uh, the areas of need throughout the state are largely rural areas that have absolutely no access to behavioral health services. So. Um, uh, Northeast Ohio, Cleveland itself, has more access to resources than many other areas of the state and many other areas of the nation. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, I'd probably, mm -hmm. just, probably just add to that, you know, I mean, 
if we're going by some of the data, you know, we're 47th, 48th in um, health outcomes here. That's not good enough. Um, we need to do better. Um, we still have overdoses, uh, right? 13 a day. We just got another alert that, um, another overdose alert this week. Um, we still have, uh, on average, five people dying by their own hand um, a day in Ohio, and that's also, you know, not okay. Um, so there's, there's a lot um, um, that we need to do. We need to invest in this. Um, we also, though, need to invest in quality, um, good programs. Um, have, have had conversation with Scott. There is only so much money uh, and so many programs and so much need. How do you, how do you decide um, <laughs> what to invest in and where? Um, so I think that that's a big discussion and, and something that's going to have to happen at both the federal, state, and local levels. You mentioned the recent overdose surge. Um, you know, people may have heard about that in the news this week. What do you think is behind that, the, just the, inc the rapid increase in the past few weeks? And it's been a steady increase over uh, the past couple of years. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think that Dr. Yelson uh, relayed that the majority of the overdoses over the last couple of months have been associated with fentanyl. Um, so that's, that's across our community at large. Um, and, um, you know, the pandemic, as Dr. Boutros brought up, it, it unleashed more uh, behavioral health issues and more um, levels of crisis. Uh, the addiction crisis, the opioid addiction crisis, is a real health crisis. And, it's, and it has been perpetuating for, for decades and continuing to grow. And we, we have to tackle that as a medical condition and treat it as such and provide the services that people need. And we have to keep investing in treatment. Um, can't stop doing that. But we also um, have to move upstream, you know, right? We have to start thinking about prevention, start thinking about other ways to, to solve this problem other than, other than treatment. Um, and, and I think we could probably talk all day about that, but, we but, that, but that's, that's it. Also, a, a bigger embrace of harm reduction strategies. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cleveland is pretty progressive in this, but still not enough, right? Getting, getting the, the Narcan out there for, uh, for emergency use. Uh, that's the drug overdose. Right, test the overdose strips. reversal drug, yes. I should say. Mm -hmm. Right, yes. sorry. Uh, fentanyl strips so that you could actually test whatever you're using to see if there's fentanyl in it. Um, uh, as well as when you're talking about opioids, you're, you're also talking about uh, needles and syringes and uh, making sure people have clean syringes for their use because they're going to use one where they're going to use no matter what right uh, to make sure that they have clean needles so that we're not spreading HIV and hepatitis C and all of those other things that are that, are, that will kill people uh, to make sure that they can get to a point where they can get into treatment right getting to treatment is the ultimate goal but we need to be able to provide those uh, interim uh, services. I, there's a great deal of research ongoing in relation to the um, genetic components uh, as they pertain to any medical condition, but specific, of specific interest is addiction. You know, investing more in that, uh, ensuring that people understand that when you have family members that have diabetes and your parents say you need to watch your carbs, it's the same issue if you have family members who have addictive conditions. Mm -hmm. you, you need to be aware of it, you need to communicate that, and you need to be open about it. Well, let's move on to the next question. We've kept this gentleman waiting a while. <laughs> Thank you. My question is for Ms. Bruner. 
There was a fascinating article in the Sunday, uh, July 10 print edition of the Times about the increase in prescription drugs being taken by people since the pandemic. So my question is on treatment, not access. And one of the things pointed out was uh, a study was done a few years ago that indicated some 79% of prescription drugs for uh, depression, anxiety are written by primary care physicians, not by psychiatrists. So my question is, is there still a tendency to try to medicate people as opposed to talk therapy? And to paraphrase Dr. Phil, how is that working for us? So with any healthcare condition, it's, you can't take, you can't separate out the medicine from the communication and the acceptance of how you have to have lifestyle changes. It, it comes hand in hand. And so for uh, primary care has been, I'm a family medicine doc. Uh, primary care has, has, been the, uh, has been the mainstay in relation to all healthcare conditions, recognition of illness, and, and treatment uh, at, at its very beginning. And one of the things that brings great value in relation to treatment for any healthcare condition when it's chronic is ensuring that you are helping people adapt their lifestyle to that condition. And uh, that's one of the wonderful programs that we have at Metro Health. We have integrated behavioral health uh, within all of our primary care sites. And that really has shown and continues to show across the nation improved outcomes relative to care. Do we have another question? Yes, thank you all for being here. My question is with the resource, resource challenges that we have, how much consolidation of service providers are we seeing now and what do you foresee in the future? Hmm. That's a great question because we just saw a hospital here in town announced this week, UH announced some consolidation of services so it's happening and it's real. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you look into the future, I think I think most of us who are in this field see consolidation coming uh, soon. Um, there's also, you can't just do behavioral health. You need to add in that integrated primary care, whether it's through a partnership or, or at your own, own through your own organization. Um, you know, the, it's interesting, the behavioral, if, if you think about behavioral health, it's like, it, go back to like medicine in like the 1950s Right, there are so many private practitioners out there that even, even beyond just the organizations, the number of organizations in Cleveland or in Ohio, uh, beyond that are all these private practitioners who are out there. And that, it's, when you have that, right, that helps keep prices low, right? That helps keep reimbursements low because there's no bargaining power, right? So yes, I think, I think consolidation will help the system uh, in that way. I also think, um, you know, do, doing, doing care differently, um, you know, on our campus at East 22nd and Community College, you know, we're, we're looking to do healthcare differently, to create a health campus, to not only have acute care, but complete care, um, um, to provide uh, social determinants um, all, all in one spot. And I think we are going to need to see more, you know, one-stop shops, um, especially for the, for, for the population that we all, we all talk about and we all treat. Um, it is, I mean, for me, it's hard to make it to all my doctor's appointments. Imagine having all the things on board that the folks we work with have on board. It's just really difficult. But we ask them to go here for their addiction care and here for their mental health care and somewhere else for their primary care. Thankfully, we are seeing more and more 
uh, integration of services, which is a step in the great right, uh, which is a step in the right direction. Um, um, but I definitely think um, having a place, a place, a location where people can go and get what they need when they need it most, is probably what we need to see. So kudos to to, to UH who has um, you know reallocating resources um, and trying to to, to make. Um, you know, lemonade out of lemons and, and really provide in those areas where they're vacating service, um, additional wellness and support services for people on those campuses. I think the, the other piece that I would add to this is um, uh, I, I'm, uh, consolidation may be down the path, maybe where we land, but at this stage in the game, I really think that there's a value in integrating uh, the services that we have available and ensuring that community behavior or it has the availability to support Metro Health and that we can also pass people uh, to them as, as we need to. We, that's the bridge that I think will help us at this stage in the game. I couldn't agree more. It goes along a lot of what we've been saying about that collaboration, that communication. And when the question was brought up about um, the increase, you know, in medical treatment, I immediately think of, you know, the many children that I've worked with that um, are placed on medication and there's no communication um, to everybody else who's working with that child and you know um, the barriers that sometimes can exist with where's the parents education on the treatment where is the follow-up with the therapy the behavioral therapy um, the behavioral interventions along with that um, and so what are the dire outcomes of treating children and adolescents without all those safeguards in place in that mm -hmm. communication. Are the barriers there because there's, as, as the panel has said, they have to go here for this and here for that. Is that part of the breakdown in communication that there's so many different places they have to go? I would say that's a big part. I would say that um, in this field, it, I think a lot of us could say it can be overwhelming, the amount on your caseload, the amount of clients, and then what system is in place to support the communication that's needed despite you know maybe how many clients or cases you're dealing with where you need to engage so systems um, that could be put in place to better facilitate what that communication looks like how somebody from a behavioral health agency can be collaborating with um, a doctor at metro health at a uh um, so a lot of times like we're saying the resources are there and it's kind of like an increase in in, um, in information, an increase in knowledge, an increase in communication, and getting on the same page. Okay. Is, are you next? <laughs> um, just to get in a, just to get in a Twitter question for those that are either watching or listening in. This person wants to know: There's a deeply held belief in our country that individuals recover from trauma or develop skills to manage mental health in a predictable, linear manner. This is not reality and leads to systems regressing to a compliant and punitive approach. How do we respond? Hmm. Uh, I think my first response would be there's nothing linear in life um, and certainly not in behavioral health. Um, it, it is always going to be, um, paths are, are always going to be woven throughout, um, throughout your care. That, that is true, but I guess it was around are we treating people like that though? Even though oh, life is no. not linear in the system, are we treating people like it is? I think we do on the addiction side in particular. I think there's still a lot of moralistic kind of view of addiction and our treatment system is still set up to be, you know, uh, you just go and you're done. 
right? Instead mm -hmm. of treating it like it's a, it's a lifelong illness that you need ongoing care for with de different levels throughout your life, we don't treat it that way currently. Um, so I think in, in that way, I think there is still kind of a punitive approach of you know, discharging because you're non-compliant or mm -hmm. uh, that, that sort of thing. So is it the stigma things? Is that still real? Like, I know that people within the system try your best to help uh, lessen the stigma, help people understand. But are there people within the system who still, you know, carry some of these uh, beliefs from the past and, and stigmas that they're passing on when they're caring for patients? Yeah. <laughs> um, that know. was a quick answer. <laughs> uh, stigma is everywhere. Um, it's prevalent. It's in people themselves, right? Um, depending on what source you look at on average, it might take somebody 10 years to get treatment. Imagine if it took people that long to get treatment for some medical conditions. We would be in a lot of trouble, which is why we're in the trouble that we're in mm -hmm. in behavioral mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, I think it goes to stay, of course, stigma and providers. Um, it's those people. We don't treat that. You know, it's um, in policy. Um, and and uh, Eric mentioned it early on, right? Our, we, we, how long ago was parity? And, and really, where is it? Um, you know, and it's in payment models. Uh, imagine if we, um, um, you know, you know, we took cancer and we, we made people go through levels of care. I mean, come on, you know? So I think there are a lot of things um, um, that, that- So just the way it's designed is, is, is in a way, a st with stigmas in mind, the way the whole system is designed, sure. right? Yep. yep, I think it infiltrates everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, thank you for being here. Um, the outrage over the Jane Edna Center and the lack of outrage over the treatment of the young people in the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center is glaring. Um, all the young people in the detention center are not murderers. Uh, they're kids, children, youth. Uh, and the detention officers are the ones who spend the whole day with them. Uh, and I'm concerned about um, who they're hiring. Hmm. So my question to you is, if you were sitting on an interview team to hire detention officers for the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center, um, what kind of questions would you ask to see if they're a good fit? Hmm. That's a tough question. <laughs> it's very important, but a tough question. Any thoughts on that? I would say an initial place um, to start when you're thinking about the population that they'd be working with is um, what is their background and training in terms of trauma-informed care. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that once again speaks to what, um, you know, what our training programs um, are implementing, what training, additional training can be informed because there's only so much we can, mm -hmm. you know, take in in our um, programs, but can that be provided to those who are at the front lines um, working with individuals who, are, who have experienced significant trauma? Yeah, so if they don't come in the door with it, can they get that training immediately? Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts on what would be a good question to ask or so, how to assess? Yeah, so one of the questions that we asked all the nurses that we've hired at, at, for the Cuyahoga County Jail is, why do you want to work at the jail? Where is your, where is your interest? Where does this come from from you internally? Why do you want to work at the detention center? Tell us, tell us why. 
Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking the same, along the same lines is what are you most passionate about? Mm -hmm. um, really finding out what somebody's passion is, where somebody's heart is, um, that they're not just there for, um, you know, for unfortunate, I mean, right, for a paycheck, right? Um, that they're, they're there to really make a difference and um, that there's passion. Um, it's what everybody in here has. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. I don't know if we're going to this mic next. I think we're at this mic next. You, go ahead. you can go ahead, sir. Hi, hi. thank you for um, all your work and your comments today. Um, my, um, my question is, um, with, the, with the knowledge uh, that the majority of folks who cycle in and out of our carceral system um, have underlying mental health and behavioral health issues, what is the role of um, service providers, agencies, and institutions in advocating with policymakers and officials to move the conversation around public safety upstream and out into the community? Thank you. Mm, upstream. I think you mentioned upstream, upst that we need to go upstream, right? Yeah. I think, you know, there is, there are. <laughs> <He> said, <"Yeah."> <laughs> 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 Would you like to elaborate? <laughs> we, we do need to go upstream. And there is, you know, the uh, 988 is just one part of the crisis continuum that Ohio is in the process of building out. And that's what really takes us upstream. Right? We've done, uh, done things like train police officers so that when they intervene, they can recognize behavioral health symptoms. And uh, we've, we've opened the, the diversion center by we, I mean Cuyahoga County at the Adams Board uh, has, has opened the diversion center, which is another place where you can take people. But then the, the point is that like way upstream, right? And that's, that's what we're trying to get to with the uh, behavioral health urgent care centers and making sure there's easy access to care so that you can prevent people from getting to the point where they have that emergency, right? We want to get it way upstream and, and really provide the treatment, with, which again, this goes back to reimbursement and workforce and, and having the resources available uh, to care for people. You know, and it's, it's also about getting out there into the communities, um, walking alongside the community, um, leveraging those relationships, doing that engagement, um, working with the children, preventing, uh, working on violence prevention strategies, right? Helping give people the resources um, that they need to succeed and be well as kids, you know, before, you know, a lot of that stuff happens. But really, I think working alongside um, the community, doing community engagement. We've been doing some great work. Rashawn's been doing some great work at our, um, um, at our health system around this and to really help us understand um, as a health system what central, what that community really needs. Um, so getting out there, boots on the ground, walking together hand in hand is uh, a good start. I think that's a great way to end this conversation. I would like to thank you, Michael, Julia, and Eric, and Jessica, for joining us here today on the City Club. Can we give them another hand? Today's forum is part of our behavioral health series in partnership with Metro Health, with additional support from Sisters of Charity Foundation of Cleveland and the Woodruff Foundation. We'd also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the centers, 
Metro Health, the Sisters of Charity Health System, and the Woodruff Foundation. Coming up next week, the City Club will host the final Public Square Forum of the summer on Tuesday, July 19th. Idea Streams Rick Jackson will be here for that one. He'll be joined by Lila Mills and Jim Crutchfield to talk about Cleveland's new nonprofit journalism initiatives. Then on Friday, July 22nd, we're back at the City Club to hear from Bashira Addison, Jill Rizika, and Renee Timberlake about what it will take for workers to thrive in the workforce. Talanje with Jumpstart Inc. will be moderating that conversation. And you can learn more about these and other forums at cityclub.org. Cityclub and that brings us to the end of the forum today. Thank you again to our panelists and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor from IdeaStream and our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.